Alrighty, turn to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter number 13. And we'll be in verse 17. The title might be a little familiar, although I won't, like Pastor Tyler said, give you too much credit on that. But since Brother Sid brought it up before church tonight, he said, now listen, I know what message you're preaching, and I know you've preached it before. And the OU game is tonight. And so... You know, I might have my phone with me. I'm just saying. You might, might want to speed it up. Yes. <laughs> uh, Pastor Tyler actually asked me to, to preach this message. He thought, um, he really felt like that this would be best. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. As, as he said last week, his next message is on uh, worshiping through vindication or something like that. Revenge. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm okay to pass up that psalm and let him preach that. I'll, uh, I'll preach on detours a little bit. And so we'll be in Exodus chapter number 13, verse number 17. Let's, let's just look at verse 17 together, and then we'll dive into the message tonight. It says this, And when it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, the ten plagues and all of that had happened, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said... Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. Look at verse 18. But God led the people about. That word would mean almost out of the way. Through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. I've told the message tonight when life takes a detour. Shelby and I, this Friday, believe it or not, I think even my in-laws are shocked at this. They're here tonight. Grateful to have them with us. We have been, as of this Friday, we will have lived in liberal Kansas for five years. Can you believe that? It seems like it's only been just one day, right? The time has flown so quickly. We've been here five years, and I remember when we first moved here, a lot of people, when I would tell them where I'm at, Many of you understand this. Where do you live or where are you serving out in ministry? I serve Fellowship Baptist Church in liberal Kansas. And then, and then yeah, the what? And really, the, the next question they really wanted to ask was not where is liberal Kansas, but why on earth are you in liberal Kansas? You know? You look, you're from Tucson, went to school in Oklahoma City. Why are you in liberal Kansas? Please tell me. And I, 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 I can think back on the last five years, and our answer to that has gone, uh, has evolved from, we're in liberal Kansas because there's this amazing church there, but, you know, I, I could take the church but leave the town, to now, five years later, honestly, Shelby and I have gained a massive appreciation for life in western Kansas. It took a little bit of time, but we really have gained an appreciation. There's a lot of things I love about western Kansas. I love the laid-back culture. I don't know, Potsy probably remember when I first came on staff, and I still got a little bit of this in me today, so forgive me, but I just always had this, like, I had to hustle everywhere. And I remember Potsy would look at me as I walked in the auditorium and say, what? why are you in such a hurry, Mike? And I couldn't have a good answer to him. I love the laid-back culture. I love how friendly people are. You know, in Tucson, it's not as stiff as maybe the East Coast would be, but if you talk to a random person, it's not 
not nearly that normal. I was like, here, it's like, I could meet someone at Walmart or the restaurant. It's like, we're friends by the end of our five-minute conversation, like borderline exchanging phone numbers and having lunch together. I love Western Kansas. But if I had a magic wand, and if I could wish for one thing to disappear from liberal Kansas tomorrow, you know what it would be? Trains. Anyone with me on that? I hate trains. Trains. You know, the trains that stop when you're on your way to the north side town, if you live on the south side, or I'm sure many of you north side folks coming to church on the south side town, the train that when it pulls through, you don't know if it's there for two minutes or for 20. In fact, I want to see just real quick, show of hands, who has been stuck at a train for more than 30 minutes? Okay? 45 plus minutes. Keep your hands up. All right. 60 plus minutes. Okay. Got some competitors here. Okay, we got a couple. She's not so sure. She's like halfway up. Who has been stuck at a train for 90 plus minutes in this room? Megan, Shelby, anyone else? 90 minutes. Can you believe that, church? Shelby was stuck at a train for 90 minutes. And and you know how it is. You get stuck in the cars and and you're blocked in. You can't do a U-turn. The cars are too tightly packed. And so you're just stuck there at the mercy of the train. Why they need to be here for 90 minutes, I'm not so sure. But for some reason, they happen to stay. And here's the thing I hate most about trains. There's virtually no way to get through the train. There's only one way. The way, the truth, and the life, that is the overpass by National Beef. That's your only hope, church. Pro tip, if you're stuck at a train, as soon as that train stops, you hightail out of there and you go to the overpass by National Beef. That's your only hope to get out of there. I hate trains. You know why? Because they mess up my travel plans. Commuting in a small town is supposed to be easy. And I don't like detours. I especially don't like it when I got to weave my way out, go to the overpass, which isn't really easy to get to from most parts of town. And I have to go all the way around and get to the overpass to get through the train. I feel like that there are few better memes or pictures of 2020 than a citizen of liberal Kansas stuck at a train. Because don't you feel like this church that sometimes that's almost a picture of how life seems to go for some of us. You have a destination in mind. You have somewhere that you feel like your life is headed. You have plans. You have goals. You have dreams. You have aspirations. And you're on your way there thinking you're going to get there in five minutes. But for some reason, God interrupts your life and he takes you on a detour. I was looking back on 2020 because it's about to be over. And I thought about, yeah, right, round of applause. I thought about the weddings I was supposed to attend this year. I thought about the, the events we had on our church calendar, Brother Prater. I thought about all the things, and I feel like that 2020 was almost the year of the detour. You know, and you had all these plans laid out, and it seems like God or whatever you want to blame the coronavirus on just wiped the calendar clean and just took us on a long way around in a detour. But I'm not naive enough to think that that COVID-related stuff is the only thing that maybe messed up your year. Aspirations in their finances. 
But for reasons totally outside of your control, the financial goals that you set six to 12 months ago are now irrelevant because for some reason, a huge financial disruption ended up in your life and you're facing bills that you never thought you'd face. You're facing pay cuts you've never thought you'd face. You face a stalling out in your pay level that you never thought you'd face. You face a job that's closing down after many years and you've put a lot of time in there. And it seems like that all the plans you had, it seems like God's put all those to a screeching halt. Certainly other things that come up in life. People have plans for family and the number and the timing of the children they're going to have. But that stuff doesn't seem to happen always in the timetable that we have planned. Or I could think about other things like uh, job aspirations. We have to move forward in our career, but we get passed up. Or I think about maybe some of our young people who have plans for different uh, education goals that they may have. And so here's what happens in our life a lot of times. We have a plan, we have a path, we've charted out our course, and yet it seems like in ways that are totally out of our control, God has taken us on a detour. So here's the question. What do we do when life takes us on a detour? What do we do when things don't quite go as They seem they should, and when it seems like life is going in a totally different direction than we imagine. That's what we're going to find in Exodus chapter 13 tonight. Because as we read in verse 17, the children of Israel were fresh off of this exciting victory. I mean, they had escaped from slavery of Egypt, and and I don't have an exact number, but a lot of historians estimate it would have been 100 to 200 years long that they were trapped there, and, and yet they were fresh off this victory, escaping from slavery, and yet they had this detour that they countered, encountered when they'd least expect it. In fact, you would think that the coast was clear. You would think that things were in the clear, but yet instead of taking the simple route to the promised land, what we're going to find in verses 17 and 18 is that God did not take them on the direct path to Canaan. God took them on the long route, on a detour. Look at verse 17. It says this, It came to pass when Pharaoh let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war. Look at verse 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. I want you to look up on the screens. I believe I have a map there. Uh, It's hard to see, but there's a red line at the very top of the page, uh, at the uh, top of the graphic that hugs the Mediterranean Sea. If someone were to leave Egypt... That would be the route that they would take. It's a very straight shot to the promised land. You leave Egypt, you stay near to the coast, which in their day, they didn't have a lot of navigation tools. And so that was the easiest way to navigate was to stay close to the coastline. And in that region, it was more luscious. A lot of greenery, a lot of nice places, uh, a lot easier travel. I mean, you got to imagine, here's Moses. He's taking, I don't know, a couple million people with him. And it's not like all of them are young people who, you know, are the type of people who go hike the Grand Canyon for fun. He's taken old ladies and little three-year-old Natalies with them. And Lord knows when you take three-year-old Natalies on a trip, it's not always easy. 
And so you would think that they would go the direct route to Canaan, but I want you to look on the next slide. God took them on this path, if you could see it, and it's almost like a U-shape that does a loop-de-loop. It looks like a roller coaster. It doesn't look like the most logical path to Canaan. It literally went in a big circle and zigged and zagged through the wilderness. And instead of going through the luscious green areas up by the coast, it went through the dusty wilderness. Instead of going through the flat areas by the Mediterranean Sea, it went through the mountainous terrain of the wilderness. And instead of going through the place that would have been easiest for the Hebrew people to cross, it went through the most difficult terrain that they would have had to get millions of people to walk through. Day after day after day. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, come on. These people were enslaved for a couple generations. Why would God take them on the more difficult path? After they'd already endured enough hardness, after life was already unfair enough, why would God take them out of Egypt only to weave them through the wilderness in a big zigzag and add difficulties to their life. Why would God do that? Look at the end of verse 17. He says this. Right in the middle of the verse, it says why God did that. God, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Pay attention to this. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war, and they return to Egypt. You know what was the problem with the direct route? The direct route had the Philistines on the way. And God knew that if his people encountered the Philistines, they would be so scared out of their minds, they would literally turn back and go to Egypt. Now that might sound crazy for people who were literally enslaved to Egypt, but mind you that like one chapter in the future, in Exodus 14, they are already complaining that God brought them out into the wilderness to die. They're already complaining one chapter later that life was better back in Egypt. And so God knew if they encountered the Philistines, who were a well-established nation, that, they would, that a bunch of runaway slaves would have no chance in their minds of conquering the Philistines. And they would just turn around and head back home. God knew that they would see the weapons and the warfare and would know that the Philistines would have home court advantage. And so they would just turn around and head back to Egypt. And so here's what God did. God lovingly steered them around because he knew there was something they couldn't handle. He knew that there was something in their path that they weren't prepared for. And isn't it true in life that a lot of times we, we hear the saying, right? The fastest way from point A to point B is a straight line. That it seems like in God's economy, and God's GPS, that the fastest way between point A and point B is more like a zigzag. Here's the question tonight. Why does God do that? Why does God take us on a zigzag to the place that we feel like is our destination? Why is it that when we see that a when we feel like that there's something more in store for us in our job that we get overlooked? Why is it that our family plans don't quite go as we think? Why is it that it always seems to take longer than we think we should take to get there? Why is that? Here's the truth, church. God's detours are not 
for your discouragement. They're for your development. That when God takes you on a detour and when God takes you the long way to a promised destination, the reason God does that is not because he wants to make life hard for you. But just like the Israelites, what God is doing is he wants to develop something in you that you need to have developed. That God wants to work something in your life. I think of uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. You've probably seen this verse on a greeting card or two. It, it says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. If you've studied out that verse, it's not so much the Hallmark card verse you might think. But it's a lot of a similar thought to this in that here's what God was saying to his people in the book of Jeremiah. I'm not going to change your situation but I'm going to use your situation to develop you. And that's the expected end that God has for his people. That God may not always bring you to the destination you want, church, but here's what I can promise you, is if God doesn't bring you there in the timing or even to the destination that you have in mind, here's what I can promise you, is God is going to bring you on a zigzag path that in his intentions are to develop you and to make you a better person. That his detours are for your development not your discouragement. Church, can I just encourage you that whatever you're facing right now, if you feel like life is stalled out, if you feel like God's taking you on a zigzag path, if you feel like life just kind of doesn't seem to be moving anywhere, can I just encourage you that that is not by mistake? That is not by accident? That is not because you've messed up your life royally? That the reason you might be feeling that is because God is trying to do his greatest work in you? You know what I found in life? That sometimes, Brother Prater, that when I feel like nothing is going on in my life is the very time in which God wants to do his greatest work. You know how God developed Moses to lead a nation of people? He brought him out to the wilderness to his father-in-law's house to raise a bunch of sheep. You know how God developed David to be a king? He sent him on the run for his life for several years. And led him through the wilderness. You know why? Because God takes us on a detour to develop us for his glory. And to make us something that is better on the other end. God takes us on a detour to develop patience. As we wait on his timing. God takes us on a detour to develop reliance by not giving us what we want. God takes us on a detour to develop trust in him because he doesn't give us the full picture. And here's the truth, church. The very times in which you feel like nothing is happening might be when God is accomplishing his greatest work in your life. I've found, I think a lot of times why I get impatient on the detours of life is, is here, here's why. Because I tend to estimate overestimate how ready I am for the destination and underestimate how woefully underprepared I am. Look at verse 18 again. You might miss this phrase in verse 18, but look at what it says at the very end. It says, and the children of Israel went up, what's the next word? Harnessed to Egypt. What does that mean? It means they left Egypt in military formation, like they were suited up ready for war. You know what's funny about that? Israel thought they were ready for battle, but God knew they weren't. Pay attention to that. Listen, 
Israel thought they were ready for battle, but God knew they weren't. And here's what that tells me sometimes, is that at the very times in which I feel like I'm ready for the thing that I have my sights on, whatever point B may be, that sometimes when I feel like I'm ready, God sees that I'm not. And God takes me on a detour. It's really easy to preach that. It's really easy to talk about God's trying to develop you. But here's what I found as well, is that in the very detours of life, when life seems to zigzag and not go the way that we plan, it could be really easy to get discouraged. It could be really easy to feel like God's forgotten us. It could be really easy to think that God is not there. And that's why just for the last couple minutes of the message, here's what I want to do. I want to give you just two encouraging realities. Two encouraging thoughts. If you find yourself on a detour tonight, if you find yourself in a time in life in which things aren't going according to plan, I just want to give you two reminders from this text that God gave his people that I think might help us tonight. And here's the first one. I love this. When you're on a detour, please don't forget this. God will be faithful to his word and his promises. God will be faithful to his word and his promises. I want you to look at verse 19. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from a verse about a coffin. Look at verse 19. It says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Now, you've got to understand, you can't really appreciate this verse until you know some history behind it. About 150, 200 years before the children of Israel left Egypt, um, a Hebrew man named Joseph, you'll be familiar with him from the book of Genesis, he reigned as Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was second in command in Egypt, but he was an Israelite. He was a Jew. And he lived in Egypt. He brought his family down to Egypt because you'll remember that there was this great famine and the entire rest of the world basically was starving. And the only people that had food were uh, Egypt. And of course, God in his providence and his sovereignty uh, elevated Joseph to second in command in Egypt, right? And Joseph had kids and his family was still there. And when Joseph died, what verse um, 19 is saying When Joseph died, he said, I don't want you to bury me in the tombs of Egypt. Now, you've probably seen the BBC and other documentaries on, man, the the tombs in Egypt are just fabulous. I mean, just totally ornate and decked out. I mean, it was a big part of their culture. If you were a leader, they put a lot of effort into how they buried you. And, of course, the, the, the wealth and all of that that they stored in those tombs. And Joseph, though being second in command in Egypt, though being top of the line, though it being part of their culture that you would have an honorable burial when you died, Joseph said, don't bury me in Egypt. Put my bones in a box and don't bury me until you get back to Israel. You know why he said that? Look at verse 19. He said, because God will surely visit you. Here's, here's the point of verse 19. Joseph was so sure that God would come through on his promise to give the children of Israel the promised land. He was so sure about it. He was going to face a dishonorable burial. And he said, don't even bother putting me in the ground because I'm so confident God will give you this land. So I want you to imagine this. They're traveling through the wilderness. Moses is packing up the children of Israel. Food, check. Horses, Check. Tents. Check. Box of bones. 
Check. We're marching through the wilderness. I don't know what his coffin looked like, but I imagine it's a pretty nice coffin. You know, he had a, probably had a lot of money. Carrying the coffin. It's all gold. The bright desert sun's shining off of it. And you know, some little kid like Natalie notices the gold box marching through. No one opens it. No one hardly touches it. Say, Dad, Mom, what is that? I just picture maybe a parent telling him, well, remember Joseph? We told you about him. He died before Grandma was born. And that's, that's his box of bones there. Mom, why are we carrying around a bunch of old, dusty bones? Well, because God told Joseph a long time ago we'd leave Egypt. And Joseph was so sure that God would come through, they said, don't bury me until you get there. And so anytime you see Joseph's shiny coffin, you remember that God will always come through. And he'll be faithful to his word and to his promises. You know why a box of bones has a lot of significance? Because that box of bones was a tangible reminder that Joseph, 150 years ago, placed his trust that God would come through. And and guess what? In that 150 years, it didn't seem like God was making a lot of progress. Come on now. In fact, it seemed like it was going the wrong direction. Israel was in power, second in command, and then somehow in 150 years, they went from being in command to being enslaved. But 150 years later, they're marching around the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They could look at the box of bones that marched along with them and say, someone believed that God would be faithful to his word. And once you look at it, God was. Because God delivered us from the land of Egypt. We thought we couldn't get out of there. We thought that it was impossible to leave, but God delivered us. And it was a tangible reminder that God was faithful to his word and to his promises. And church, listen, I can't guarantee you that you'll always get to the destination that you have in your heart. I wish I could guarantee you. If you're a young person here, I wish I could guarantee you that God has someone special in mind for every single person. And you'll always get married and always live happily ever ever after. I wish I could promise that to people. But I can't. You know what I can't promise you? That God will be faithful to his word and to his promises. I can't promise you that, yeah, you may be overlooked in your job this time, but boy, next time God will get you. He'll, 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 he'll make sure that you're seen by your boss. I can't promise that, church. I can't promise that, that you're going to have the number of kids that you wish you would want to have. I can't promise you you'll get to a a physical, tangible destination. But I can promise you this, that what God has said in his word and what God has promised to you as a New Testament Christian, God will never let you down. That the promises that God has in his word are still faithful. That the same people who wrote the promises, believing that God would come through for them, experience those promises to be true in their lifetime. And that you can find out in your own lifetime, in your detour, in your zigzag, you can find out that God will be faithful to his promises. I think of Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. I may not be able to promise you that you can get to the exact place you want in life, but I can promise you this, that whatever God does in your life, he does it for your good and for his glory. I could promise you in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that whatever you face in life, that God's grace will be sufficient for you. 
I, I can promise you in James 1, verses 2 through 3, that, that when God tries your faith and when God brings trials into your life, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That when you face difficulty in your life, God is doing that to build your faith. And I can promise you in James 1.5 that when you do face trials and when you do call upon the Lord and ask for wisdom, that God will always give you wisdom, that he will not upbraid you, but he will give wisdom to everyone that asks him. I could promise you this in Hebrews 13.5, that you don't have to be covetousness or want anything in life because you have everything you need because Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know, church, wouldn't you agree that those promises are a whole lot more profound and a whole lot more valuable than some of the things we set our hearts on sometimes? So how can I know that's true? Well, I'd imagine you could probably look around the room tonight and see some Josephs who've trusted that God would be faithful I'm not talking dead people. I'm talking old, maybe older saints. I knew you'd think that. It sounded cool. You could look around the room and see some Josephs who, who in their lifetime experienced hurt and pain almost like you have. That they felt stranded like you feel stranded now. That they felt lost like you feel lost now. And I could imagine that if you have enough conversations with some people in our church, here's a plug to have some conversations with people in our church, that if you get to know them, you'll find that they found God to be just as faithful as Paul did. And that when you rub shoulders with the saints, you'll find that God will be faithful to you too. And that we can always believe whatever life, wherever life takes us, that God will be faithful to his word and to his promises. It's nice to have the promises of God's word. But sometimes, church, don't we feel like, it feels like God's not really there with us. Yeah, we've got the Bible, and we've got some verses memorized, but it seems like, doesn't it, a lot of times when we travel on a detour that God's just not quite there with us. And that's why I love verses 20 through 22. Because here's what the text shows us is that when you're on a detour, God will give you a tangible sense of his presence. Look at verse 20. And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them. He went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. Verse 22, he took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here the children of Israel journeyed, and, and here's basically what the text says. Everywhere they went, every time of day, every season, every weather condition, Every circumstance, cloud cover or no cloud cover, all they had to do was look up Amen. and God would be there. Yes. And I, I like the words, God took them not away. Yeah. Meaning it was, it was everlasting. It wasn't just temporary. In fact, in a lot of times in the Old Testament, that's how God worked. He just poof and then leave. You know, it's like, it's like 
God just kind of checked in, it almost seemed like, in the Old Testament. But when his people were journeying through the wilderness, when it felt like they weren't quite getting to the destination on time, they had no excuses. They could always just look up and see God was there. You know, I thought as I studied this, man, it would be nice to be able to just look up and just see, I don't know what it would be, something. But you know, in some ways that God has given us a more tangible sense of his presence than they had. Oh, they had a pillar of cloud and they had a pillar of fire and they had something above them to remind them of God's presence. But listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you have something in you that is God's tangible sense of his presence. You don't have to look around you and wonder where God is. You just have to look in your heart. It's not something up there, but it's something in here. And the Holy Spirit is there with you. And I hope he's even doing this tonight to remind you, listen, life may not always be fair. It may not always go how you want it, but you can be assured of this, that I'm with you. And I'll always be there for you. And when no one else understands, and when no one else has your back, God is there for you and with you. You know, God's even just a little extra good too. Because I feel like God doesn't just give us the Holy Spirit but he gives us people, doesn't he? That I feel like, Brother Prater, that in sometimes in life, maybe it's because my faith is weak that I just need something a little bit extra. And God has a way, doesn't he, church, of just sending people just at the right time to do the right thing, to send you a text when you need it, to give you a hug, even when you're not a hugger, when you need it. To give you a, a gift. I know a lot of you ladies do that. Write you a card. Man, we were, on Monday, we, Shelby and I, is, I'm not going to get into the details, but it's just kind of a rough, rough morning. Cloud kind of hanging over the day. <clears throat> and we went and got a coffee. Because what other manifestation of God's grace is there on planet Earth than a cup of espresso, latte, something, coffee? So we went to Scooters, pulled in the drive-thru, ordered a latte, no flavoring, because coffee is the flavor, extra shot, Shelby ordered chai something, I don't know why you, why, but chai, and some bagel sandwich thing, and we drive up to pay, and uh, someone paid for us behind us. And my wife's a little more spiritual than me. And I, I think she made a good observation. She said, you know, the, the Lord just has a way of just showing you he's, he's there for you. Yeah. And honestly, church, I, I'm not trying to sensationalize that, but I really needed that. Amen. I really needed that. And I just, I, I can't always articulate how God's going to do that. But man, even the last couple weeks, God has just over and over just ministered to me through people. People in this church mostly. And I, I don't know how it'll happen for you. I'm, I'm sure you hear a story like that. Man, I wish that would happen for me. And, and I've, I've been in the same boat, honestly. It doesn't always happen like that. But I do know this. God has a way. I can't explain how he'll do it or when or who. But God has a way. If you're, if you're looking, if you're paying attention, just reminding you, hey, I'm, I'm here. I've got you. You're not making this journey by yourself. 
And so when you're on a detour, and when the process of God's development in your life feels discouraging, church, can I just remind you that God will be faithful to his word and his promises. And God will give you a tangible sense of his presence. And really, if that's all we have, that's enough to make the journey, isn't it? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you...